Well, welcome to Friendship Church Online. We are so glad that you're worshiping with us today. Whether you're watching it live or whether you're watching it on YouTube, we're glad that you are uh, watching and, and a part of our church service today. We've been going through the life of Christ chronologically. We took Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and put them in as best as we can, chronological order. And so we've been studying the life of Christ so that we get the context for where Jesus is, who he's with, what he's doing, and when he says or does something, that we understand it on a much deeper level. During this message, you can comment questions. Um, you can email them to us uh, using our, our church website if you'd like. Um, and then uh, we'll do our best to respond, uh, maybe an email response um, to you directly if you provide an email or we'll try to upload a video. Um, so make sure to say hello and uh, in, in the comments section, let us know you're worshiping with us. There's something that really stands out to you that really ministers to you. Uh, let us know. We definitely love to have your feedback. Um, make sure this week to share the video, share the resources that we are putting out for our youth ministry, our children's ministry, as well as this video. Uh, you never know who's going to be ministered to and who's going to need that encouragement. So you can, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 12, and that's the passage of scripture we're going to be covering today. The title of my message today in, in the In His Steps sermon series is called The Greedy Son. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says the person with the most toys wins? Ask yourself, what do they win? The person with the most toys takes exactly the same number of toys out of this life as they brought into this life. Absolutely none. When a person is in eternity, whether in heaven or hell, the number of toys and possessions they accumulated in their lifetime, won't matter one bit. Yet in a materialistic culture, we can easily see how greed seeps into a person's heart and takes hold of their desire for more. When a loved one dies, the family gathers at some point to discuss the will. What is going to happen to all the stuff that that person owned? Usually people will feel a sense of entitlement to something that the person owned. If a person was wise, they would have specified in their will who gets exactly what. And if they were really wise, they would have specified that if there's any strife, if there's any contention, if there's any significant disagreement, that the person causing that would get nothing. Because the reality is that funerals can bring out the worst and the most selfish in some people. And sometimes, like in the movies, a person produces a more recent will that supersedes all previous ones. And it changes everything. Now this creates a lot of drama in the movies, but it also creates a whole lot of frustration. And sometimes anger and hatred among those who feel they have not gotten their fair share. Contested inheritances were nothing new, and the Bible gives us actually several examples of when they happen. The passage we're looking at today begins with such a confrontation and a very important teaching by Jesus. But first, the context. After heavily rebuking the Pharisees, a large crowd of many thousands of people gathered around Jesus to hear him teach. Luke chapter 12. 
and he warned them of the hypocritical, hip, uh, sorry, hypocritical practices of the religious leaders. He told them not to be afraid of dying, but rather to fear God who has the power to cast evildoers into hell. He told them that if they acknowledged Jesus before others, that he would acknowledge them before the Father. But if they denied him before others, then he would deny them before the Father. And Jesus told them not to be afraid when they were called before religious leaders to defend themselves, because the Holy Spirit would teach them what to say. And out of nowhere, and completely off topic, some random guy raises his hand to ask a question. Verse, uh, chap- Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide that inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge and arbitrator over you? Now, ironically, Jesus is actually placed in the position of Moses here. And it's a person, you know, Moses was the person that the Pharisees constantly compared him to, insinuating Jesus didn't measure up. And to be fair, rabbis were considered judges and arbitrators. So it was not an uncommon idea for a person to go to a rabbi with this kind of problem. However, Jesus's response would indicate that this man was not a disciple of Jesus. He wanted someone to side with him. And if Jesus was this compassionate person that everybody said he was, then surely he would agree that things should be fair. And so a little bit more context is found in Deuteronomy 21, 17. And it mandated that the eldest son should receive a double portion of the inheritance. So if there were two sons, the eldest got two thirds and the youngest got one third of the inheritance. But before that was a rule, there were at least three examples of when the larger portion of the inheritance went to the younger and not the elder. Each time, however, it was God's will for it to happen that way. And in the book of Genesis, we see three generations in a row face a controversy over this inheritance issue. And we'll get into the root cause, the heart issue, in just a minute. But we first see Abraham and Isaac. You see, Abraham's oldest son was Ishmael, the son he had with their servant, Hagar. Then he had, many years later, he had a son, Isaac, with his wife, Sarah. And then after Sarah died, it says in Genesis 25 that Abraham remarried. I know most of us probably assume that Abraham only had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, but he actually had more than that. In Genesis 25, Abraham remarried after Sarah died, and he had six sons with a woman called Keturah. He also had sons with concubines, lovers. And being the eldest son, Ishmael should have received the double portion of the inheritance. You count him twice. However, he did not. Before he died, Abraham gave gifts to the sons he had with Keturah and his lovers. He gave nothing to Ishmael. And he gave everything he owned to Isaac. Thus, Isaac became massively wealthy. So Abraham did it with Isaac. Isaac now does it with Jacob. 
In Genesis 27, Isaac was old and he was ready to give his inheritance to his twin sons, Esau and Jacob. I know we always say Jacob and Esau, but Esau was the firstborn. And so Isaac, the father, told his son Esau to go out on a hunt and to give him a final meal. And then he would speak his blessing over him and give him his inheritance. But in a previous story, Esau had come back from a hunt with nothing and was starving. So he traded his inheritance to Jacob for a pot of soup. When Isaac told Esau in, in Genesis 27 that he was ready to give his blessing to uh, an inheritance to Esau, Esau never corrected him. He never told his father that he didn't deserve it that he had traded it away for a pot of soup. Instead, he went out expecting to receive what was no longer rightfully his. Isaac's wife, Rebekah, overheard this conversation between Isaac and Esau. And she favored Jacob. So they devised a plan to trick Isaac. And they succeeded. And Jacob got Isaac's blessing and inheritance over Esau. The younger son once again supplanted the elder son. And after all, that's what Jacob's name means, supplanter or trickster. And so Isaac, the younger son, got the double portion or all the inheritance. Jacob got the inheritance over his elder brother Esau. And now we see another example, the third generation in a row. Now Jacob is old and he's near death. And he began prophesying blessings over his children and giving them their inheritance. Reuben, Jacob's eldest, had defiled his father's bed by sleeping with one of his father's lovers. So Jacob refused to bless him and give him any inheritance. And in Genesis 48, Jacob's son Joseph, the one who was the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph came to see him and he brought his two sons, Manasseh, the eldest, and Ephraim, the youngest, that they might take the place of Reuben and Joseph as Jacob's son and receive portions of the inheritance. But when Jacob spoke his blessing over them, he crossed his arms, putting his right hand, his hand of greater blessing, on the head of the younger son, Ephraim, and his left hand, the hand of lesser blessing, on the, hand of the, uh, on the head of the eldest son, Manasseh. And Joseph took hold of his father's hands and he tried to uncross them, saying, No, my father, this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But Jacob refused and he said, I know, my son, I know. Manasseh will become great and become a tribe of people. But Ephraim, his younger brother, will be greater. So for the third generation in a row, a younger son was put ahead of an elder son in terms of inheritance. And Jesus knew these stories. He knew how Abraham blessed younger, jo younger Isaac over elder Ishmael. He knew how Isaac blessed younger Jacob over elder Esau. He knew how Jacob blessed younger Ephraim over elder Manasseh. Three generations in a row of the elder serving the younger. Jesus knew all this. And Jesus also knew what the Torah commanded regarding matters of inheritance in Deuteronomy 21. 
Here he is confronted with a man who felt like he had been wronged. We don't know whether he's the elder or the younger in this situation. But the will had been read. The inheritance had been divided up. And he was denied something he was entitled to. I don't believe Jesus was at all apathetic to matters of justice. Because we can clearly see throughout his ministry that he cared deeply for those things. But why did Jesus not do what the man asked? Why didn't Jesus take up this man's case? Why didn't Jesus offer to help make it right? If we keep reading, we discover what was at the heart of the man's request. Luke 12, 15, And he and Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Jesus said, beware, be on your guard. And the idea we get here is that there are traps of greed and covetousness all around us. And it is easy to fall into the trap of wanting more, to own better and nicer things than the things belonging to the people around us. To covet is to desire something that doesn't belong to you. I want his car. I want his house. I want his wife. Coveting is the desire of something to which you are not entitled. You didn't pay the price for it. You didn't sacrifice for it. You haven't earned the right to have it. That's covetousness. Greed is a little different. Greed is this selfish and excessive desire for more than what you need. Greed is not satisfied with just having what your neighbor has. Greed wants more. Greed says, I want a bigger house than theirs. I want a nicer car than they have. I want more and I want to be able to flaunt it. At the heart of greed is the desire to reproduce covetousness and greed in the hearts of others. And this concept was prevalent in Jesus' day, and it is just as prevalent in ours. Coveting and greed can thrive in any circumstance, any style of government. It is not a political issue. It is a heart issue. And Jesus said, life isn't about piling possessions on top of possessions. True life is not about the accumulation of wealth. The word translated as possessions here actually means beginnings, what comes forth or what a person produces. So Jesus, a Jewish rabbi speaking to Jewish people, is probably frustrated that they have misunderstood and they've completely missed the message of Sabbath and it's gone right over their heads. We learn the first way to prevent greed from taking root in our heart is, number one, regularly taking a Sabbath helps protect us from greed. Sabbath is the one day a week, all week, where you don't do anything but rest and worship God. No laundry, no dishes, no chores, no trading on the stock market, no lawn mowing, no work. Sounds awesome, doesn't it? Sabbath is the day where you are commanded to rest and not produce 
anything. You are commanded to simply worship and rest. To rest in the knowledge that God loves you, not because of what you produce, but because you belong to Him. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were cursed because of their sin. Adam was essentially told, you will work. And the curse against Adam was essentially, you are what you produce. So when a man goes unemployed for a long time, he can struggle greatly with his self-worth because his self-worth is tied to what he produces. If he doesn't produce anything, he doesn't feel like he is anything. And all of that goes back to the garden with Adam. Eve was essentially told, you are what you reproduce. When a woman is infertile and can't bear children, she greatly struggles with her self-worth because her self-worth is tied to what she reproduces. And Sabbath is the one day a week where God lifts that curse off of us. It's no longer about what we, what we produce or what we reproduce. It's that we are His children that He dearly loves. He'll take care of the provision. Jesus reminded them that life is not about production. It's not about possessions. It's not about a relationship with our stuff. It's about a relationship with the living God. The second way to prevent greed from taking root in our hearts is number two, learn from the mistakes of others. Learn from the mistakes of others. Jesus followed up his statement by telling the parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. Just by the title of the parable, you can see where this is going. There was a rich man whose land produced an abundance of crops, but his barns were already filled to the brim and he had nowhere to store this influx of wealth. His solution seemed reasonable. Build bigger barns to hold all the wealth that he had. So far, it doesn't seem like an unreasonable thing to do. But then Jesus shows us the rich man's heart. Luke 12, 19, the rich man says, And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. By using this phrase at the end of the rich man's statement, Jesus connected his listeners back to Ecclesiastes 9, 7, which said, Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. Within Judaism and even within segments of Christianity, there are people that believe that wealth is a sign that God is with you, that God approves of what you do. Yet Jesus refuted this idea time and again with people. Life does not consist in the accumulation of wealth or goods. Why not? Well, Jesus ended the parable, verses 20 through 21. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. 
This story is meant to drive further the point that Jesus had told the crowds back on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, it says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. God will require an accounting from every person and whatever their God was in this life will be revealed. When our God is our possessions and our wealth, it cannot save us from the judgment that comes for everyone. People like to implement Ecclesiastes 9, 7 in their lives. Eat, drink, be merry, for God has already approved of what you do. What they forget is the context of that verse that's found in the passage that precedes it. And what it says is the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, those who obey the Torah commands and those who disobey the Torah commands, they all die. Ecclesiastes 9, 6, the verse right before, it says their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Through this story, Jesus reminded them that every person will give an account of all that they loved, all that they hated, all that they envied, how they spent their time, how they viewed their wealth. Did their wealth enable them to help others and promote the cause of Christ? Or did they use their wealth selfishly and allow their hearts to fill with all kinds of envy, covetousness, and greed? Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 26, it says, And Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his, life, uh, his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? The third way to prevent greed from taking root in our heart is found in Luke 12, 31. The third point is seek his kingdom and all these things will be added to you. Now the word seek doesn't just mean to look for. It means to seek and strive after something in order to find it. So it's not passive. It's not passive like if you were sitting on your front porch looking at cars or people walking by. No, this is an active seeking. It's like going hunting for something. It also means craving something, to starve after it. And so you get the idea way back connecting to the story of Esau and his inheritance when he was starving. And he met Jacob that day. And he traded his birthright, his inheritance, for a pot of soup, connecting Esau's story to the story of this greedy son who wants his inheritance. He's starving for something, like a deer pants for thir and thirsts for water. 
So our soul, our innermost being must crave, must pursue, must starve and thirst after God's kingdom. Seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. What are these things? Well, Jesus has been talking about material things, food, clothing and material necessities. Jesus said in Luke 12, 30, for all the nations of the world seek after these things and your father knows that you need them. Our needs don't take God by surprise. He knows what we need and he's perfectly capable of providing. In fact, he wants to be our provider so that we take from his hand only what he wants us to have. Often we choose to take his place in this and we try to become our own source, our own provider. And when we do this and we start to get some wealth, it's easy for greed to begin to take root in our heart. We must come back to the words of Christ, seek first his kingdom and these things will be added to you. When that's our mindset, God will meet our needs and provide all the blessing that we need. Finally, the last way to prevent greed from taking root in our heart is to remember Paul's words from 1 Timothy 6, 6. So our fourth point is that verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. When I was a youth pastor and a teenager would come up to me and ask me, what is the meaning of life? I pointed them to this verse. To me, this is one of those scriptures that is so simple that many people just read it and keep on reading. Yet, you know there is some profound truth in actually understanding it. The meaning of life, the meaning to a fulfilled life really is simple. First, live a life that's pleasing to God by surrendering to Christ and observing God's commands. As James said, we not need, oh, we not need, we need not be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. Basically, what he's saying is faith without subsequent righteous action, as James would say, is worthless faith. Faith should move us to action. Righteous action. And second, be content with what God has blessed you with and don't let envy, covetousness, and greed take hold. If you can be content with a godly life, with the blessings from God's hands, you will have a great and fulfilling life. If you can't accept being surrendered to Christ, if you can't obey what God has commanded you, if you can't be content, whether in poverty or prosperity, then your life will not feel very fulfilling. You always feel like you're missing out on something, that God is withholding something from you, that the commands of Christ are more of a burden than a blessing. Paul continued in 1 Timothy 6, 7 through 10, telling this young pastor, Timothy, that he was mentoring. For we brought nothing into the world. Can you hear the words of Christ here? We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. The word snare means trap 
into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The desire for wealth brings a whole lot of temptations and opportunities for sin. Paul said that the desire to be rich makes us easily fall into traps set by the enemy. Through many hurtful and injurious lusts and forbidden desires, they are plunged. They they sink like a ship into deep destruction and ruin. Is God calling everyone to a life of poverty? No. But he does call us to be content with what he provides and use it all for his glory. If we're not doing that, we need to check our hearts to see if the love of money and wealth has taken root in our heart. When we look at the farmer in Jesus' story, we see the peril of prosperity when it becomes our sole pursuit. When we look at wealth as a means to please ourselves, then we're not looking at ways to leverage our wealth for God's purposes. We're not being rich towards God, as Jesus said. Being wise with money and our resources that God gives us is never wrong, but letting it control us, drive us, and become our chief aim in life is wrong. Jesus told this story knowing this greedy son's heart. Now, most listeners to the story, they probably envied this farmer. They probably thought this is the life. He had success, satisfaction, security. He had abundance. What more could anyone want? The listeners thought the the man was enjoying life. But Jesus knew that the farmer had a corrupt heart and was facing death. Jesus wanted his listeners to know the true life does not come from the abundance of things. The concept that he who has the most toys wins is a corrupt concept and will lead you to a life of envy, covetousness, greed, disappointment, ruin, and death. God is not impressed with our money. A life lived for the pursuit of wealth is a wasted life. The farmer lived his life without God and would face an eternity apart from God. Our heart and our desire must be this. God, don't let anything take first place in my heart except for you. Don't let anyone or anything presume to take root in my heart that would lead me down a path away from your presence. I don't want to be like the greedy son. I don't want to be like the greedy farmer. I want my life's motto to be godliness with contentment is great gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word serves as guideposts, warning us along our life's path, showing us how sin can take root in our heart. And we thank you, Lord, for this story that Jesus shared that serves as an example to us to make sure we're not allowing greed and envy and covetousness to begin to take root in our heart. So, Father, we pray that you would help us 
anything that is has has a grip on our heart anything that is a higher priority than our pursuit of you lord we pray that you would help us put things in right priority that any ungodly thing will be removed from our life removed from our heart that our sole pursuit would be this as the deer pants and thirsts after water so our soul longs for you oh god our redeemer we thank you lord We thank you, God, that you are first place in our life. And when you're not, Lord, reveal that to us so that we can make it right. God, go with us this week. You know what lay ahead of us with our job situations and our home life. Lord, you know what what we're facing um, with our government and the the changes and, and everything that's going on. Lord, you know. And we pray, Lord, for your perfect peace. Uh, as, as Paul wrote in Philippians 4, in it from, from a jail cell, he said that the peace of God that passes all understanding, that surpasses all of our comprehension, that we can have peace when it doesn't make sense to be at peace and you'll guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. So Lord, help our minds and our hearts be guarded, be protected from the fear and the anxiety and the worry. Lord, we thank you that we can depend on you that you are faithful. And God, we are, we're so grateful for your faithfulness to us. So we worship you today, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, Friendship Church family. If you uh, have a question, you can email it. You can comment it in the comment box. Stick around if you need prayer. We would love to pray for you. Click the button that says live prayer. And one of our ministry staff will join with you and pray. Uh, But thank you for worshiping with us. Make sure if this is a blessing to you, share this video online and and encourage other folks to uh, take a listen and watch it. Uh, We pray for you. And if you need something, please let us know. Uh, But God bless you and have a wonderful week in the Lord. God bless you, Friendship Church.